Hey, everybody. It's the Drive School Podcast. I am Pastor Goodman, your host, and uh, my, my good buddy, David Zills, is back. How you doing? I am doing all right. I'm here. That is a lot some days. Um, so uh, we've been hanging out for a little while now, and, and we've we've sort of covered a lot, a lot of stuff. Um, it might be good to just sort of look back at, and sort of talk about what it is to sort of struggle with the faith, what it is to, to defend the faith. Let's like summarize everything that we have done like as a nostalgia episode nostalgia is awesome all right nostalgia looking back over the last year um so there are different kinds of doubt um we focused on mainly intellectual doubt and specifically the kind about how do i know that anything about jesus is actually true um the reason I, I focused on that is partly because that's where I've struggled the most and so where I've studied the most. Um, but also, I think whenever you talk about uh, doubt and skepticism and evidence, anytime somebody makes a case for Christianity, eventually you're going to have to ask the question, who is Jesus? You know, there are some that there are some methods of apologetics that go straight to that question. And then there are some that start more with philosophical questions like, what is truth? Is it knowable? Um, is there absolute truth? Um, you know, these kinds of things. Is there a God really spending a lot of time on God's existence? Um, but even if you prove God exists, you still haven't proved which God exists. You know, even if you narrow it down to monotheism, there are still three choices, you know, Islam, Christianity, and Judaism. Um, so at the end of the day, the foundation of faith is the person of Jesus. And even when we talked about scripture, we grounded it in Jesus. We didn't ground the case for Jesus in the inspiration of scripture. We grounded the inspiration of scripture in the the evidence for who Jesus is. Um, and so I think that's something that's really helpful when facing doubt uh, as a Christian or someone who's interested in Christianity, I think focusing on the question, who is Jesus, can be clarifying. Because when that question is answered, it can bring a lot of things into focus. Um, so some things we've covered, we've really had four main topics in the in the case for Christ, um, which, by the way, the case for Christ by Lee Strobel, we've, we've kind of followed his outline in many respects. We've added in the miracles bit. Um, he also has a book, The Case for Miracles, which is good. Um, but that's a great, the, those least Strobel books are a great resource for digging further in all sorts of topics, you know, um, life after death, miracles, Jesus, historical evidence, science and God. What about suffering? He's got a number of books that can be really helpful and they're very conversational, but he interviews experts. So you get like really good content. Um, but but our outline has been really four pieces. Last semester, we focused on two pieces, which are really establishing the data we can draw from to make inferences. And so the two pieces were, what are the historical sources that are early that talk about Jesus? So obviously the New Testament's in there, but we also looked at sources from um, from non-Christian sources and from early Christian sources going back right up to the time of the apostles. And the key takeaway of all that is that the New Testament doesn't fit in some mythological land, you know, once upon a time in a land far away. And then there's history over here where people name names and give dates and places and we can check it. Rather, 
Christian the the New Testament and the rest of history fit together like a lock and key and you can test things from the New Testament using the rest of history and they support each other and so that gives us confidence that the things that we see in the New Testament aren't made up but are actually corroborated by other sources um, and, and there's there's agreement across the sources, not just the New Testament, but the other sources as well. And that gives us confidence that this isn't something that's just made up. Um, the second piece in terms of data we can use to draw inferences is we spent a lot of time on miracles. And the reason we did that is because you can look at historical evidence for the New Testament and make the case, okay, this seems to be reliable. It's based on eyewitness testimony. It's corroborated by external sources. It's early. These people had a lot to lose by lying. You can do all that, but then you still read these stories about a man walking on water, and you're like, I think we're back on mythology land. We're talking about Zeus and Aphrodite here. So inevitably, when you're talking about Jesus, you have to confront the issue of miracles because this stuff sounds crazy. And whenever you, whenever you come up across a, a difficult claim made by someone who otherwise seems reliable, you kind of have this choice. You can say, well, the evidence says this is a reliable source, so I'm going to believe it, even though it sounds crazy. Or you can say, well, this source seems credible, but the thing they're saying just goes against everything I know about reality, so there must be something fishy going on. And so that tension is really the core of the miracles issue. And our core argument there was that these things are not just happening in the New Testament. There's actually a good scholarly documentation that miracles that Jesus did, such as curing the blind, um, even causing things to grow back, um, curing the deaf, um, people being resuscitated from dead, um, all these things are being done by Christians today. And this isn't like some like, conspiracy theory, a ancient aliens type kind of stuff. There are scholars who have documented this. They've done statistical tests and found statistical significance. They've measured it. And and it, if these things are happening today, it gives us confidence that, well, why shouldn't we believe that they were happening then? If Jesus is doing these things today, then it would actually seem weird if he wasn't doing those in the New Testament. And so we we, we spent a lot of time on modern miracles to really make the case that Miracles in the New Testament are not a reason to, to walk away from them as unreliable. In fact, not only do the other aspects of the New Testament fit with what we know of the rest of history from the early sources, but the miracles in the New Testament fit from what we know about what's being done by Jesus around the world today. And so you put all that together and there's there, it gives us confidence that when we read the New Testament, we can look at it critically with critical thinking still, but we don't have to have this huge degree of skepticism, like, well, if it's in the Bible, it's automatically suspicious. So that was last semester, really kind of making the case that we can, we have documented evidence about Jesus that we can use to make inferences about who he was. I like that. Um, and then it, it lets us sort of treat this on a level playing field. It, it doesn't get it doesn't get bonus points because we want it to be true, but it also doesn't sort of have a, a fault already set against it just because it's, it's called religion. Um, it, it's either going to be true or it's not true. So let's, let's actually look. And that's a good point. Um, it's really easy. I know this is something that I 
really ran up against in my own personal journey. It's easy to absorb from our culture this default skepticism toward anything religious. Mm. Um, like if if there's a religion label on it, then that's a personal belief and we we can respect it as a personal belief. But if you're going to make absolute claims that are objective, you're, you're nuts. And we have to be really skeptical about that. Mm -hmm. And so the idea is you really want to say why. Why should I be extra skeptical toward these things? If these are things that are historical claims, I can assess them the way I would any other historical claim. And there's just as much burden on the proof for someone who has a conspiracy theory about Jesus who says, well, all the stories we have about him are late legends. We don't have anything that goes very early. You know, the burden of proof is just as high for someone claiming that as for someone saying, actually, there's good evidence that this goes back to eyewitnesses and is very early. You know, whatever the theory is, the burden of proof is on the person claiming the theory. Hmm. You don't just get a pass because you're skeptical and, you know, you can just say, well, it's religion, so I'm going to pop propose some theory to explain it that explains it away and therefore and i don't have to you know do my due diligence yeah. just because i'm a skeptic you know let's level the playing field everybody has to support their claims with evidence so then this semester we've spent now that we've established okay we have this body of historical data we can use to make inferences what are the explanations that make sense for two key questions and we focus first on jesus identity who is Jesus and Jesus' fate, what happened to him after he died. And for Jesus' identity, we made the case that Jesus claimed to be more than just a man, more than just a good teacher, more than even the Messiah. He claimed to be Yahweh of the Jews in the flesh. And this is not like claiming to be a Hindu God, one among many. This is mm -hmm. claiming to be the one and only God who mm -hmm. created everything. And so this is kind of a crazy claim. And so by making this claim, which no other sane religious founder makes, Jesus kind of puts himself in a category where you can't use the standard explanations that you would use for, say, Buddha or Muhammad. Now Jesus is putting himself in a level that he's either crazy or he's deliberately lying to try to get something. Um, or else the third option is these words were put in his mouth after the fact. Again, you know, the fish tail, the fish was this big, then it's this it's big. Bigger. Jesus Jesus was a man. He was a teacher. He was a prophet. He was Messiah. He's the son of God. This grew over time. And the uh, the later church rewrote the scriptures to say things that Jesus never said. And so we looked at each of those theories and we said the evidence doesn't support them. What the evidence does support is that belief in Jesus' deity goes back to the beginning to eyewitnesses who were Jews who would have never had the crazy idea of a man being God unless somebody they respected had given them the idea. Mm -hmm. And according to the New Testament, which by all accounts, seems to be reliable. The person who gave them this idea was actually Jesus, and he was literally crucified for his claims. Um, and so the second question then is, if Jesus was crucified, what happened then? And we made the case that there are a couple lines of facts that we can establish, um, in particular, the fact that Jesus died, that his disciples were convinced that they had interacted with him in the flesh, alive after his crucifixion, and that one of his enemies, Paul, also had this had similar experiences that he interpreted as appearances of Jesus. And we said, these are things that aren't just like things Christians believe, but these are things that even skeptical scholars have looked at the evidence and they say, yeah, 
there's good reason to believe that these things really happened. The debate is not whether the disciples and Paul had these experiences of the risen Jesus, but whether they were actually the risen Jesus or if they were something like a hallucination or something imaginary. The experiences were real. Um, they, they really happened, but what was behind the experiences is where the debate is. So then we had an episode where we really did a deep dive into psychology and said, does it make sense that this would have been something that was just in the disciples and Paul's heads? And we showed there, there's nothing like this kind of hallucination on the psychological casebooks. Um, if it was a hallucination, it was a miraculous hallucination. So either you have a miraculous hallucination or a miraculous resurrection. And in the context, the, the evidence we have that Jesus was more than a man, the miracles that Jesus did and is still doing today, it seems like the more natural explanation is that Jesus actually rose from the dead, that these experiences by the disciples and Paul were genuine and not some kind of freak hallucination that unlike anything that's ever been documented. So that's, you know, we just, that's summarizing a whole academic year's worth of the case for Jesus. But at the end of the day, if Jesus is the son of God and rose from the dead, that puts him in a place that no other philosophical, scientific, religious teacher has ever been. Buddha never claimed, I am the way, the truth, and the life. Neither did Muhammad, neither did Aristotle. This is something Jesus claimed. And if the claims are real, and if he rose from the dead, we don't have anything like that. And so that means when we're dealing with doubt and questions about what is real, what is true, what matters, what gives life meaning, it makes sense to go to Jesus because he seems to have things that nobody else has. And so we want to learn from him, which is a lifelong process, but at least we could have confidence that that's where we should start. Right. And that, that we have a God who, who would work in this way in time and space. It is an invitation to bring our doubts to him. Um, like we can get into whether or not it, it's good or bad to have doubts, but the question is never sort of even just limited to that, but does God, bring does god leave for you a place to bring your doubts does god uh invite you to to come and wrestle with these things with him um it, it we we talk about this thing like it's this super secret thing that that you you should be ashamed of for having uh that that real christians never wrestle with these things um but but if we have a god who acts in time and space it, it, who acts in history and then who dares us to verify it what does that say about the places where we ourselves kind of struggle yeah, no, I think that's I think that's really important. So, you know, all of the, this research I did was born not out of like academic curiosity, but because I like needed to know is this stuff real. And so yeah. I I've struggled with that. I know you have too. We have. and most Christians struggle at some point, especially going into adulthood where you're transitioning from. Well, I just believe what my parents taught me. Not everybody's there, but a lot of people are when they're younger and then you're transitioning to being adult where it's like, well, what am I about? What, what am I going to live for? And so it's, it's healthy actually to, to poke at whatever beliefs you've inherited. They could be Christianity. They could be atheism. They could be anything. It's healthy to poke at those as you're going into adulthood and say, is this something I really want to claim as my own? And sometimes it's scary. Um, sometimes it's uncomfortable. You don't know if the rug's going to be pulled out pulled out from you. You don't know if it's going to be like the Wizard of Oz where you pull back the curtain and you realize everything that you had confidence in and, and found comfort in is just a sham. Um, 
But like you said, we have a God who's not like trying to say, go, go on your own and figure that out and hide it because it's a shameful thing. It's not. And so I think, you know, maybe to wrap up, we can talk about some lies about doubt. You know, Satan is the father of lies. And I think sometimes he plants these seeds to discourage us about doubt, to make it seem worse than it is and to and to make us hide it mm-hmm. and, and not approach it in a way that's healthy and constructive. And so I think one of those lies is that doubt is inherently bad. Um, you know, you, you mentioned that. I, I think sometimes doubt can be a tool that God's given us to grow us. Um, you know, there's different kinds of doubt. There's doubt that says, I don't want to believe because I want to do my own thing. You know, that that maybe is is more sinful. But if there's doubt that says, I want to believe, but I can't just believe it. Would I believe help my unbelief? Yeah, I can't just believe it because because it's, you know, it's one belief among many. I have to know that there's there's something real to this that other stuff doesn't have. You know, that need for reassurance is where the gospel comes in. And the gospel's not just Jesus died for you to forgive you so you can get to heaven. That's the core of it. But it's much more holistic. It speaks to the desires of our mind, our needs for confidence. It speaks to the desires of our heart and our needs for for meaning in life. And so um, that's been a thread we've talked about, but the gospel's a lot bigger than just forgiveness to get to heaven. You know, Jesus said, I have come that they may have life and have it to the full. There's an abundant life in Jesus that's intellectual. It, it, it takes care of our intellectual needs as well as our emotional and spiritual needs. And so, like you said, we shouldn't hide this stuff. We need to have a culture in the church where skepticism and doubts are welcome, not just because Christians have these questions, but also because non-Christians have these questions. And so I think, you know, the, there's this question, does your church have an on-ramp you know, it, it, could someone who has no idea about Christianity and church things walk into your church and be like, huh, they, they're speaking a language I understand and they're speaking to things I've thought about and I want to pull that thread. Are they going to be like, oh, these people are speaking some language I don't understand. They all, they all are some subculture that's really weird to me. I don't feel comfortable. And so I think inviting skepticism and questions and people who think differently from us is really healthy for the church, not just for doubt, but even for outreach. Because, I mean, the thing that prompted me to really dig in wasn't just that I have these doubts, but now that everybody around me when I went to college had these questions and they didn't want it to be true. They wanted it not to be true. Um, so, um, So I think another lie... Satan can use is that you're alone. Hmm. And that was something that really bothered me when I was going through this. I felt like all the Christians just believed it and all the non-Christians just disbelieved it. And I felt like I couldn't relate to either because I wanted it to be true. Unlike what I perceived, I think incorrectly, my non-Christian friends wanted, but I couldn't just accept it. Unlike what I perceived, again, incorrectly, that my Christian friends wanted. And so I felt like I was in this alone place and that's not true. And I think as we open up as a church and we say, this is part of walking life, this side of heaven, and God is willing to go there with us. There's no part, if God created everything and is redeeming everything, then there's no part of life, gender, sexuality, suffering, science, doubt. There's nothing there that God can't speak to in a way that's satisfying. And so if we're willing to let God take us to those places, even when they're uncomfortable, it'll 
it'll remind us we're not alone. There are lots of people wrestling with these things. And so I think dealing with doubt, doubt in a healthy way, again, you said it's not just, is it good or bad? It's what do you do with it? I'd say, bring it to God, bring it to a support network who can walk with you, even if they don't have the questions, but can encourage you. And then third, I'd say, bring it to someone who's walked with your specific questions ahead of you and has found answers. Those are the three things that when I started doing those things, I started, the weight started lifting and I started feeling like I got some traction and making progress and I wasn't alone and there were resources. Um, and so I think, again, bring it to God. He's not afraid of it. He knows about it. And it's not like he's going to be shocked and feel like, oh, you found me. I'm a, I'm a spoof. I'm not real. You know, that's, that's not God. He's not going to say, oh, you're questioning me. Shame on you. Don't ask those questions. Like that's that's not how Jesus responded to doubt in the New Testament. Bring it, to, I think, as a church body, having a place where these things are invited to talk about. And even if we don't have the answers, we're willing to let people ask the questions. And then third, and this is really critical, and this is what I've been trying to do in part through these podcasts, bring it to someone who has walked the path ahead of you, who has asked your questions and has found answers because they will, unlike someone who hasn't asked your questions, they will understand the depth and the nuance of your questions that other people might just brush over in an overly simplistic way. Sure. And they'll be able to hang with you with the complexity of the issue because they've navigated it themselves. I think if we talk about doing these three things as a church, it'll really help us to not only encourage people who are doubting, but also reach reach people who don't yet know Jesus because the gospel it's a good thing and it's a good thing not just for eternity but it's 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 sufficient for our spiritual and intellectual needs now right and it's it's a place to then actually have a a conversation that's that's rooted not just in in the wishing better for the future but in the the problems of right now um which is actually what the church is meant to do and and you made a really important point sort of about you know having having an on-ramp having people there to talk about this in a significant way who have walked that path um because if you walk into a church and you're not christian and, and like i this was me um it is weird and, and like there's a place where it's supposed to be because we believe some some pretty weird stuff uh the the first thing i heard was a guy standing up there forgiving my sins in the place of god um and, and like from there it got it got stranger um that doesn't mean wrong and that doesn't mean bad but but it means that like it, it is not a, a i would have guessed these things kind of thing and so if we're gonna sort of say well just because you didn't guess it you'll never get it there, there's never really a place then for the holy spirit to to work uh he he works through through preaching through through uh the the, the proclamation of the gospel to call and gather us into faith but at the same time there are all of these other questions there are all of these other things that that hold substantial roadblocks uh in the way of of sort of wanting to sort of deal with these things in a place to actually find comfort to to have somebody there to to talk about it to, to even be willing to talk about it. it it speaks volumes to to just the things that you're saying yeah yeah no i i love everything you just said i know yeah your journey was definitely coming into this, not assuming any of this was true. So I think you've got a special place to, to speak to that from your experience. Um, no, that that's amazing. Um, yeah, so I'm looking forward to the summer conference. We're going to be diving into these things. 
Yeah, um, it's going to be called Beyond Reasonable Doubt. Uh, we're going to be coming at apologetics head on and, and what to do with doubts in the face of it. Uh, we'll be in Carbondale, Illinois. We'll be in San Antonio, Texas. If you want more information, you can go to higherthings.org and uh, check us out there. Uh, but otherwise, uh, David, thanks for the year. Uh, we're looking forward to seeing you there at the conferences. Uh, you'll be in San Antonio and uh, answering some yep. questions. We're, we're super excited about it. Yep, sounds good. Thanks, Harrison. It's been a lot of fun. Have a great day. Okay, you too.